I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist. If you've listened before, you'll already know that these podcasts are made by people who love plants for people who love plants. If you're a newcomer, welcome. You'll find that each episode is packed with features and discussions about a wide range of horticultural topics and practical seasonal advice. So whether you're a horticultural novice or a veteran, there's something to interest everyone. Coming up in this edition, exciting news about five brand new show gardens that, it's just been revealed, will be displayed at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. Featuring collaborations between garden-loving celebrity broadcasters and award-winning garden designers, they're guaranteed to bring an extra feel-good factor to this year's show. Stay tuned to find out more. As always, we'll bring you the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. And, where do you find the most indispensable tool in the gardener's arsenal? No, not in the shed or greenhouse, but on the bookshelf. As it celebrates its 30th anniversary, we find out why the RHS Plant Finder has gained a reputation as the plant lover's bible that keen gardeners can't live without. But first, our monthly question time. RHS members can put their gardening questions to our expert advice team for free by phone, post or email. Or any visitor can talk to us in person at our RHS flower shows. Each month on this podcast, some of the advisors get together to discuss some of the queries we've received recently. So, what's been puzzling gardeners this April? I'm Tony Dickerson. I'm a horticultural advisor here with the RHS at Wisley. I'm joined today by Guy Barter and Jenny Bowden, who is also a horticultural advisor with us here at Wisley. Right, we have a question here from Richard Wentworth from Telford. He has an orange jelly-like growth on some of the branches of a juniper. Is this a disease and will it kill my tree? Uh, is there anything I can do to get rid of it? Um, well, Guy, this sounds a bit of a mystery. On the contrary, Tony, this is the classic sign of the pear rust fungus. And uh, rust fungi, they usually have two alternate hosts and they have a long and complicated uh, life cycle. And the life cycle starts... Um, on the pear, for example, when you have this classic rust that looks like a little eruption, as though a little insect is living in this swollen gall on the underside of the leaf with a yellow margin at the top. Um, this is a very common and spectacular disease, but doesn't actually seem to cause significant harm uh, to the cropping potential of your average pear. 
The spores from the fruiting body, the growth on the pear leaf, won't infect other pears, but they will infect junipers. And when it infects a juniper, you get an extraordinary distorted, gooey shoot from which spores are emitted each year in the spring. And those spores won't infect a juniper, but they will infect a pear. So you have to have the two in in conjunction. Now, of course, you could theoretically protect your pears by going around all the local gardens and cutting down people's junipers, but that is frowned upon. Um, so it's just something we have to put up with. But if you happen to find it in your own garden, then prune out the infected spur, and that'll protect your juniper and incidentally protect pears as well. It's quite an interesting disease in that until the last 10, 15 years, it was hardly known. But since then, for reasons we don't understand, it has become really quite widespread. Helen Pink has sent in a question by email. She says, please help me. I recently planted rabbit proof plants, which included helenium, nipophia and other plants, which are all listed as being resistant to the beasts, but all were dug up. What do you advise, please? Jenny, I believe you've experienced rabbit attacks in your garden. What do you think? Yes, well, we've we've uh, over the past few years, we've been developing a garden on the edge of some heathland, uh, which is very much full of rabbits. And uh, I, I learned fairly early on that uh, rabbit proof plants don't actually exist. Um, we publish a list of rabbit resistant plants, uh, which you can have a go at, but at certain times of the year, rabbits will eat anything. I didn't get so much trouble with them being dug up. They were more just decimated. Um, so um, Helen is describing uh, heleniums. Well, they're they're in the daisy family and they flower uh, midsummer uh, through to late summer. And nephophia, uh, the red hot pokers, so a very a very classic flower, um, but uh, are popular with the rabbits. There was a few things that I found weren't eaten by rabbits, which are hellebores and euphorbias and narcissus. So you could have a garden of those plus a few crocosmias. But really, the only way is to f- use fencing. And fencing-wise, I really recommend the Forestry Commission's uh, PDF. Their specifications for fencing is, is spot on. And you don't have to dig down. You actually bend the wire outwards, so on, on, the, on the outside uh, boundary, because rabbits aren't actually that bright, but they will bounce straight up to the vertical and they will burrow directly next to the vertical. They don't think of of digging out, say, a foot, 30 centimetres from the upright, which is where the edge of your bent out wire will be. The other thing you need to have is 18 gauge wire, which is quite a thick wire because they bite through it. But uh, as far as the plants are concerned, there's a very small group of them <laughs> that they won't touch. And baby rabbits tend to have a go at things. They'll, they'll, they'll nip your hellebores, break the flowers off, and they'll, they'll think, oh, that, that's actually not so good. So it's still ruined, but they haven't actually devoured them. I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit intrigued by this digging up business. Yes, I um, am too. I wonder, yeah. I wonder whether, in fact, it's not something, something else that's digging the plants up i wonder whether it could be a badger perhaps looking for chafer grubs underneath the plants or a fox perhaps attracted by organic fertilizer do you think that's a potential that's a possibility i i tend to agree because i haven't seen them i haven't i don't have badgers in my garden it would only be rabbits so and i haven't had anything dug up like that 
I have roots floating in air where voles come and burrow underneath and there's a little sort of a raised area which which then gets flattened out when you put your foot on it. That's not moles, that's voles, but they, but they don't dig either. So yes, I, I, I agree, Guy, that there may be um, badgers. So a little bit of um, inspection and watching and waiting at dusk might be helpful in just identifying what's going on there. Josh Solcombe has written to us from Belfast and he says, I have a green gauge tree which is in need of some renovation as it has become overgrown, a bit lopsided. Can I prune it back hard now? At all costs with established fruit trees, you need to avoid pruning anything hard uh, because that'll just result in masses of what we call water shoots, which are thin, tall, spindly growing shoots that erupt from the top of the uh, pruned cuts making your fruit tree look more like a hedgehog than a fruit tree. But there's a couple of issues here. Uh, Trees are not normally lopsided if they're in good light. So the first thing I might look at, especially if this is a prized tree, is what's around it. It may be a case of cutting back something else hard so to allow light in. And uh, once light is allowed onto the shaded parts of shoots and so on, they're often... uh, stimulate to actually produce new buds that will actually then grow out into that space so i'd first of all look at that certainly where you do get uneven growth pruning back a strong growing shoot it seems the natural thing to do but what will tend to happen the harder you prune a stronger growing shoot the more likely it will respond with equally strong growth so you can really remedy lopsided growth by hard pruning overgrown well Again, established trees can be quite crowded, but if I were doing any work on this, it would be with a pruning saw. I'd be waiting until the leaves start to open because green gauges, they're stone fruit, so they're very prone to infection by silver leaf. And really, I'd be looking this year just to cut out um, two, three, four branches with a saw. And in particular, I'd be trying perhaps to open up the center of the tree or to remove large branches that are crossing, or if one branch is just a three, four, five inches over another, one of those two branches needs to be removed. In general, secateurs, just keep them in the holster, keep them out of the way. If you're working with secateurs, you're almost certainly pruning wood that will just result in lots of weak growth. So it's a careful, considered exercise here. And importantly, spread it over two or three years. You don't need to get a fruit tree into shape all at one go, and you won't. Hard pruning will not result in good fruiting. All stone fruits, uh, as Tony as Tony suggests, are actually pruned uh, as the leaves are opening and you can go through to uh, June, July. Uh, the point is sil- silver leaf is a fungal disease and it enters through wounds. And what it loves best is, a hum- is humid conditions. So in the autumn and winter, it's very humid, uh, damp evenings, damp days, and the spores absolutely love it. And it's true of other other fungal diseases and bacterial diseases to which stone fruits are so prone so as the days get longer and warmer that's when you get your secateurs out and it is literally the leaves will go silvery and all you can do is cut out the damage and it will probably spread as well so there aren't any chemicals on the market to actually prevent that uh, or or to cure it so it's a case of starting again or or just cutting out the damage i was just going to say that um green gauges are rather large trees and they're not well suited to smaller gardens so 
if um, this turns out to be a tree that's too big for the garden, uh, it might be worth thinking about replacing it with one of the smaller gauge plum hybrids, uh, like Ulan's gauge. So uh, there's that to consider. The other thing, I've got a question for Tony, is what do you think about the practice of when you want to restore a lopsided plant, you prune the part of the plant that's not lopsided to induce growth there to get balanced growth? Well, yes, this is the theory behind pruning. Trees that respond to hard pruning, uh, if you cut a strong growing branch hard back, that will naturally tend to re-sprout. So uh, an alternative approach is actually to leave a vigorous branch, but to actually cut back one of the shorter, less vigorous branches in the hope that you actually stimulate it into producing strong new growth most cases it works not in every case and i suppose there's a general issue with fruit trees you know commercial growers probably ripping out their fruit fruit trees after a dozen years or so Um, home gardeners obviously trees have more ornamental importance and such like but you do have to consider uh, the productivity of a fruit tree and um, you know there may come a time that even an old cherished apple or pear or plum tree you have to look at it slightly hard-nosed and uh, perhaps replace rather than Uh, constantly seek to renovate trees that may eventually just be beyond their sort of worthwhile life we have an email here from steve silgo um he grew some tulips in pots this year they grew produced flower buds however they did not open but instead were dry and papery he asks is this caused by a disease or did he do something wrong in caring for them well what's the answer here when this happens to to my tulips, I usually find it's because they've run short of water at some stage, um, and as a result, they haven't developed properly. So that's some, certainly something to be worth considering. Perhaps the pots were kept indoors. They're perfectly hardy. They can be left outdoors, um, or perhaps they were in a greenhouse where they would get light and cold, but perhaps not enough water. So I think it's worth um, worth considering that for future years. The trouble with tulips is they tend not to be much good the second year but if you want to give them a second go keep them watered and fed between now and june and uh, lift the bulbs at that time dry them off in a shed and replant again um, in the autumn but tony you're a great expert on bulbs what's your take on this well um i mean one of the advantages of tulip bulbs is they they do like to be stored in the warmth so uh, it shouldn't be a problem some bulbs if you did that um you know, snowdrops or whatever would sort of erythroniums they would just uh, shrivel to nothing so that's probably not a problem they can be planted quite late but if it was too late i mean if it was in the into the new year or whatever um what tends to happen the bulb tries to produce a shoot and a bud before roots are formed um and again if they've been the actual container's been kept too warm and say it'll, it, they'll produce shoots before the roots and the idea with autumn planting of bulbs is that they produce those roots which then uh, start to sustain the bulb and the new growth that comes in the spring tulips certainly the bedding type tulips a wonderful display but generally i think you need to regard them as uh, an annual crop and dispose of them they're very difficult often to get them flowering again but if you're looking for reliable bulbs you need to look out for uh, in the catalogues where the dealers are mentioning either species tulips or sometimes they talk about rockery tulips these are shorter perhaps no more than um, eight ten inches high but they tend to be far more reliable uh, things like uh, 
tulip tarda and so on will flower year after year and there are certain hybrids like red riding hood and so on and those if you do want sort of displays coming back year after year those are the ones to concentrate on there are some useful lists um i think down at great dixter uh fergus garrett down there did some trials they they love their tulips and so uh, he's been looking into ones that are reliably perennial um, so if you search on the internet, you'll find that list. And th- th- there's quite a good range of tulips that will come back year after year because uh, I look for that kind of value in my garden. And uh, I have quite a few uh, things like Red Riding Hood. I think there's there's an orange one, isn't there, Tony, called Prin- is it Princess Irene? Yes, it, um, I, I like my oranges. Or whatever, but, um, but yeah, yeah. They're, they're always, they're usually shorter Um if you're lucky enough to have some of the showy, the showy tall bedding ones come back year after year, you normally see them in gardens, and they're always either red or yellow. Um, I think they might, I think they probably revert um, after some time back to their back to their parentage, uh, which isn't a bad thing to have to have a few tulips that come back. But certainly here at Wisley, we treat them as uh, an annual an annual crop, and they get ripped out, and the summer bedding gets put in. You can choose carefully and have them there for uh, year after year. It's an interesting thing with tulips. We tend to discard them every year, um, but uh, they can be kept. And there's a, I think there's just one left of a Wakefield, I think it's in Wakefield, a tulip fanciers um, group, where they grow the tulips of the old-fashioned way that are infected with virus and have the most amazing streaked foliage. So I thought... um, because I never have much trouble keeping my tulips going, I thought I'd have a word with the exhibitors last time they were uh, showing their tulips up at Harlow Carr. And um, I had a word with them and they said, yeah, it's quite possible to keep tulips going. Um, And they keep a selection of tulips called breeders, which are particular single colours. And they keep them going simply by planting them in the autumn, digging them up in the summer, drying them off, keeping them warm, replanting them again in the autumn into fertile soil. Um, And it may take a while for the bulb to reach a a growing size, but it's perfectly feasible. At that stage, if you're a tulip fancier, you infect it with virus. But um, as soon as you infect it with virus, it's on the slippery downhill slope and they may not last very long after that. So that's very much an acquired taste. But um, in theory, uh, you can propagate your your tulips yourself in the garden. Now, most tulips are grown in Holland. About last time I looked, it was about 60,000 tonnes of them, which is a phenomenal number of tulips. But there's also a few growers in Britain um, who grow tulips as well. And I was driving through a, um, a lane near Winchester a few years ago, and to my amazement, there was a field of tulips next door. So there's nothing wrong about the British climate. It's just that in Holland, uh, they've got more fertile soils and they can manipulate the water level in the low-lying silty soils that they have there um, but by and large because tulips are so cheap uh, most people uh, probably haven't got enough time or it's not that important to them and um, in that case just buy fresh stock every year the rhs gardening advice team contact details for the team can be found on the advice pages of our website There you can also find details of how you can become a member of the RHS so you can use our advisory service for free at any time of the year. One of the other benefits of joining the RHS is free access to our four gardens. Wisley here in Surrey, Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire, Rosemore in Devon and the stunning Hyde Hall in Essex. 
In late spring, the beds and borders are looking amazing, and there are lots of events and attractions for all the family to enjoy. Here's a selection of what's on offer over the coming days and weeks. Come along to Harlow Car on 23rd of April and see a display of orchids by the Harrogate Orchid Society. Learn how to grow them, find out how to repot them and how to care for your plants. Join us at Hyde Hall for a four-day craft fair over the May Spring Bank Holiday weekend, 28th of April to the 1st of May. There'll be something for everyone, as well as over 40 exhibitors, there'll be demonstrations, music and food available. If bonsai are your thing, then don't miss the Bonsai Weekend at Rosemore on the 6th to 7th of May from 10am to 4pm. And finally, don't miss the British Iris Society Late Spring Show on the 29th of April at Wisley with colourful displays, specialist plant sales, photographic exhibits and the chance to chat with Iris experts. The show runs from 11am to 4pm in the Hillside Events Centre. All these are free with normal garden admission. Full details of all events and many more are on our website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. Another RHS event which is rapidly approaching is of course the world famous Chelsea Flower Show. This annual floral extravaganza attracts gardeners, designers, nurseries and visitors from around the world in a week-long celebration of the very best in gardening. Recently it was revealed that this year's show would, for the first time, be showcasing five feel-good gardens, unique collaborations between high-profile Radio 2 celebrity broadcasters and top-name garden designers to produce inspirational gardens designed to uplift the senses. Show manager Tom Halfleet told us more of the details of these exciting new gardens. My name is Tom Halfleet. I'm the show manager of the Chelsea Flower Show and head of shows development for the RHS as well. So we've got these five fantastic gardens, all under the title of the BBC Radio 2 Feel Good Gardens. We've partnered with uh, BBC Radio 2. It's their 50th anniversary. Um, and it was a fantastic opportunity for us to work with Radio 2 and bring five fantastic gardens, all based on the five senses. We have the Sight Garden, which is uh, Annika Rice working with... Uh, Trisha Guild and Sarah Raven, which is going to be an explosion of colour. We have the Sound Garden, which is designed by James Alexander Sinclair, working with Zoe Bull. And this garden is going to to almost uh, visibly vibrate in front of the viewer. Moving on to John Wheatley, um, who is working with the two heavyweights, uh, Chris Evans and uh, Mary Berry, on a taste garden. And he's planning on planting 50 different kind of edible plants and vegetables to celebrate the 50 years of BBC Radio 2. We then move on to the scent garden, which is being designed by um, Tamara Bridge, who was the RHS Young Designer in um, 2015, working with another finalist from that year's competition, um, Kate Saville. Um, And they've designed a garden working with Joe Malone um, and Joe Wiley. Um, So they're looking at um, scent memories and how memories can stimulate scent. Um, And then we move on to the last of our five, which is the tactile garden, which is Jeremy Vine working with uh, Matt Keatley, who um, has exhibited at Chelsea twice before, winning People's Choice on his first attempt in 2014. So all five gardens together, I'm sure, are going to be a fantastic new element to this year's Chelsea Flower Show and a must-see for everyone who visits. 
Tom Harfleet, manager of the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. You can find out more about these gardens and see plans and artist drawings of the designs on our website. Now, this month marks the 30th anniversary of one of the most useful tools in any serious gardener's armoury, the RHS Plant Finder. An invaluable guide for devoted plant lovers, the Plant Finder links those who seek plants with those who grow them. For three decades, this innovative and painstakingly researched guide has provided a snapshot of British garden plants and trends. The latest edition is packed with special features and additional articles. We meet the editor to find out about the book's remarkable history and what treats are inside the anniversary edition, which is published this month. My name is Dr Janet Cuby and I'm Editor-in-Chief of the RHS Plant Finder. The Plant Finder is an amazing book that we publish once a year. It's a list of all the plants that are currently known to be available in Britain, with a few exceptions, and uh, where you can get hold of those plants in different specialist nurseries around the country. The book is a great resource to anyone who's looking for a particular plant, if they've seen it in a garden and they want to find out where they can get it from, if they're looking for a plant with a particular name, um, for example a a name of their daughter or something like that, or if they're travelling in a particular part of the country and they want to know all the little specialist nurseries in that area, they can have a look and see what's local to where they're going to be and um, go and visit some of them. Some of them are open to the public, some of them just do mail order, but all the details of all the nurseries are in the book. The Plant Finder came into being in the 1980s. It was first published in 1987 um, through the Hardy Plant Society. Um, it was the, the brainchild, really, of a gentleman called Chris Phillip. He and his partner had moved to a new house with a large garden. They were looking for interesting plants to put in it, and he started a little database of his own, tracking what nursery was selling what, so he knew where to go for what he was looking for. And uh, he got in touch with the Hardy Plant Society, and uh, they teamed him up with Tony Lord, who's a great plantsman. And uh, Chris Phillip and Tony Lord worked on this book together for many years. And the first edition was published in, in 1987. And ever since then, it's been an annual publication. And um, has the RHS been involved from the beginning? The RHS got involved in the 1990s. Um, the first one... 1994 was the first time the RHS had the copyright and uh, from the 1995 edition it was called the RHS Plant Finder and we've carried that forward ever since. My own personal history is that I've been involved since 1999. So within our our 30th anniversary edition we've made a bit of a celebration. We've got all of the usual features, the plant directory, um, the nursery directory and um, we've got uh, what we included last year, the list of AGM vegetables, descriptions and where you can find those. We've added a new directory of AGM fruit. Uh, We've carried on with the plants of pollinators, but we've done a special colour edition in the front of the book. And within that section, you can find articles by Tony Lord about the history of the book and how it came into being um, by a specialist nursery person. So we've got Rosie Hardy from Hardy's Cottage Garden Plants, who's written about um, the book and her nursery. We've got a piece by Plant Heritage about how the book has been used to help conserve plants as well over the years, which is an interesting angle. Mm. And um, I've been involved in uh, pulling a timeline of plants together. So we've looked at plants to celebrate each year of the book. The timeline is, is it was great fun pulling together. We asked all sorts of plantsmen and women, uh, nurserymen, journalists, uh, head gardeners, um, RHS colleagues, what their five favourite plants were. And when you're asked just to choose five, it's a 
very very tough thing to do and I know because I made myself do it too I thought if I'm asking other people to choose five plants I've got to be able to do it too once you've written your list of five you start editing it and tweaking it but it's never going to be perfect you just have to go with it and go with five plants that mean something to you and then from those full lists we've allocated them across the years and we'll be using them in different ways throughout this coming year there's a display of plants at RHS Garden Wisley based on this and also I've written the timeline so we've got one plant for each year my five were one from the original year of the book so we're talking about the first year each one was listed in the book and I chose one that was originally in there rhododendron koichiro vada which is a wonderful yakushimanum selection wonderful mound forming plant with white tinted pink flowers pinker in bud slight scent there and the underneath of the leaves is just so soft and velvety brown that you just have to stroke it when you walk past my second choice was uh, Cercidophyllum japonicum rotfuchs, which is a very upright, narrow selection with very dark leaves. So you've got the typical heart-shaped leaf of a Cercidophyllum, but these are really dark. And um, I have one planted just outside my front door, and it makes me smile every time I see it. My third choice was Diacea hoplis. So gone to a herbaceous plant this time. And rather than this being your typical bedding plant that many people think of as diaceus, this is a true sort of short-lived herbaceous perennial. Um, many winters I get away with growing it outdoors over winter, no problem. It has wonderful square stems. It's actually very tall for a diacea. It can get up to sort of, you know, 80 centimetres, nearly a metre tall, and has pink flowers from May, June, all the way through to September, October you know, real long flowering. And um, no, that's one I wouldn't be without in my garden. Then I chose a house plant. Had to have, you know, diversity in there. So I chose Streptocarpus harlequin blue. I was torn between two Streptocarpus, but I went for that one um, because it was the first sort of true bicoloured flower, part cream, part this mauve blue colour. And also it was our very first Chelsea plant of the year in 2010. So that was another reason for me choosing that plant. And my final choice was Philadelphus maculatus, the cultivar Sweet Clare, which was a selection by um, Maurice Foster, great plantsman. Um, it was named after his daughter. It has a wonderful arching habit, as all as you expect of that species. Um, but there's a really dark sort of purple maroon centre to the creamy white flower and these flowers all hang down and the scent is just amazing and I have it planted um, just as we're going up some steps so you have an excuse to get really close to it and just drink in the scent of an evening. Janet Kuby, Editor-in-Chief of the RHS Plant Finder. For more information on the plant finder and how to buy it, see rhs.org.uk forward slash plant finder. Well, that's almost all we have time for in this edition. Before we go, however, we've just got time to hear the second plant portrait from RHS botanist James Armitage. Each month he reveals the remarkable stories behind some of the stars of Wisley's plant collections. In 2017, the area of RHS Garden Wisley that for the past century and more has been known as the Wild Garden, the riotous wooded expanse that lies between seven acres to the north and the rock garden to the south, will undergo a name change. It will be called Oakwood. This is perhaps the most immersive and intimate part of Wisley, a place that becomes most completely itself amid the froth, frivolity and whimsy of spring, as the earth bursts alive in a superabundance of green. 
Among the chaotic verdants of this time of year, it takes a sharp eye to spot the moist plant, Arasarum proboscidium, revelling in the dappled sunlight beneath an evergreen magnolia. It is worth hunting for, however, as this is a plant as delightful as it is secretive, as bizarre as it is demure. In the wild, the mouse plant can be found growing in Italy and Spain, its heart-shaped leaves creeping through shady scrub and along rocky crevices. It is a member of the family Aracee, kin to our native cuckoo pint and the spectacular titanarum of Sumatra. Like its relatives, its inflorescences protrude from furled spades, broad bracts characteristic of the family worn like tribal headdresses. However, in Arasarum proboscidium, the tip of the chocolate-brown spathe is drawn out into a long Elizabethan flourish, so that its flowers resemble nothing so much as a party of mice, tails aloft, fossicking in the undergrowth. The plant has its origins at Wisley in a period that predates the RHS's interest in the site, at a time when it was known as Oakwood, a 60-acre estate in the possession of George Ferguson Wilson. Wilson was a horticultural enthusiast and one-time treasurer of the RHS who had made his fortune in the manufacturing of candles. He bought Oakwood in 1878 and set to work creating an experimental garden, trialling many of the exciting introductions new to cultivation in the late 19th century. His particular interests were lilies, irises and rhododendrons, and he focused his attention primarily on the wooded area that became the wild garden and the long ponds at the foot of the slope that presently hosts the rock garden and alpine meadow. He also had built a small shooting lodge that still stands between Bowles Corner and Weather Hill and is now believed to be the oldest prefabricated building in existence. Here he would entertain guests, but always himself insisting on sleeping on the ground floor due to the pyrophobia or morbid terror of fire from which he suffered. Writing in the 1930s, in an article reflecting on the first 25 years of the RHS's time at Wisley, Frederick J. Chittenden, then keeper of the Lindley Library, included Arasarum proboscidium in a list of plants surviving in the wild garden that had been introduced by Wilson. Hardy, resilient and undemanding, it appears to have persisted uninterrupted to the present day. Wilson died in the spring of 1902, three days after his 80th birthday, and Oakwood was bought by Sir Thomas Hanbury, who gifted it to the RHS, in order that the organisation could establish a horticultural headquarters away from the smog of London. Since then, under the name Wisley, the estate has witnessed wide expansion and extensive development, but at its core, Wilson's garden yet lies, unchanged in character and now recalled once again in name. As you walk its narrow paths and pause to inspect the little mouse plant, still old, still charming more than a century after it was planted, you might feel the late Victorian gentleman at your elbow and sense his satisfaction. James will be back with more star plants in May. If you'd like to see the plants James mentions and find out more about them, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash Wisley Plant Encounters. Well, that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. For now, from me, Guy Barter, and all here at Wisley, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. 
I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 